Annyeong Eseyo. Welcome to Afternoon of Delight, where Leah, Megan, and Amy, three American romance novelists discussing all things K-romance from a writer's lens. We fangirl over our favorite actors and actresses, talk up our trope addictions, and nerd out on K-drama deep dives. We'll throw in a few K-pop and K-skincare wrecks for good measure, because why not ride the haul you wave all the way to shore? So grab some duck bokeh and listen to your new favorite unease. Hey everyone, today we have a very special snack episode where we don't have Amy or Megan with us, but we do have a really special guest. So would you like to introduce yourself? Because I'm really excited. <laughs> Hi everyone, um, I'm Sarah Chung Johnson. I'm uh, the, I was the guest host. I won a competition, a giveaway from Afternoon of Delight uh, to be the guest podcast host for Hometown Cha Cha Cha. So if you've listened to that pod, and I'm not biased, it's obviously a really great pod, then I was um, a guest on on that. Um, so I'm really, really, really excited to be joining Leah because Leah wasn't on the Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha pod. So I felt like I slightly missed out on the full experience. So I'm really excited to be doing one with just Leah today. Well, I will try to give you the full treatment. Yes, I was very um, sad to miss that pod as well. I forget what, oh, I think I was. Um, you were living it up in Vegas. I was, yeah, I was <laughs> in Las Vegas. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited to get to to have a chance to hang out and talk with you. I've really enjoyed connecting with you over the last year and a bit on K-dramas and getting all your thoughts. And something I was thinking about today, actually, and getting ready for this call was, you know, usually when I wake up in the morning, I get up early with the idea that I'm going to write. And then nine times out of 10, I usually start by just reading the news to procrastinate. And this morning I did that and something caught my eye and it was in the New York Times and it was about how so I identify as uh, Gen X. I was born like the last year of the Gen X generation, I guess. Um, and so I was talking about how <laughs> Gen X women are often, they feel really more alone, alone within social media. And I was thinking about how I can see that. And the examples they were using were, you know, lots of like women who are at home with children or parenting and don't have like a chance to be interacting with friends as much potentially and they use social media as what well, you know many of us do as kind of like a window in other people's lives, but you're not really connecting. You're just kind of like vaguely aware of what other people are doing. So you know what the person in middle school ate for dinner last night, but like you don't know anything about like how they're doing really. And you don't feel like emotionally satisfied. And I think what hit me in it was I actually felt really grateful as I was reading it because I was thinking I'm aware of how that part of social media and connecting with people exists, but I feel like in doing things like the podcast or the fact that I'm writing as well and connect with writers online. Online relationships are actually really impactful for me personally. And so I kind of like felt like it was a good like hack at a story, but I actually didn't feel like it told a whole truth. And I was like interested in kind of a more evolving perspective too of like, I think it's an easy way to say like, oh, social media takes us all apart from each other and like makes us live these separate lives. And I'm like, it can for sure. But when done right, I feel like it really can bring people together. And I know for me, like we've all talked about, we don't, I don't have anyone in my day-to-day -day life to talk about K-drama, but beyond that, I don't have people to talk to normally about story crafting or books I'm reading or <laughs> current events that I'm interested in just because, you know, my husband's interested in other things like American news stresses him out. So that's a no. <laughs> and um, we don't read the same book. So, I mean, like we have things to talk about. It's just not like, it's, it's not, an, it's not like he's my full 
I can't go to him for like my full human experience essentially, which is totally fine and valid, I think. But that's one reason why I guess I was, my whole point to circle this back is to say, I really enjoy connecting with you and other folks in online spaces in the last year. Obviously we're not like incredibly close to know everything about each other, but I feel like there's like these really nice conversations that happen that don't feel surface because we're talking about story and craft and plot and characters. And I find them really fun and thoughtful and things that I like think about when I'm walking my dog or doing other things. So I just wanted to thank you. For oh, that. thank you. No, absolutely. And and I say this as, as a Patreon. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I'll do a quick plug. Uh, the afternoon is <laughs> have a Patreon and it's honestly a really, really fun space. And I can say that because obviously I'm not hosting it. I am just somebody who's paid some money to join in this community. And it's it's genuinely like I feel like I, like Leah said, there's just a group of people that we can kind of fangirl together but I really love that you've created a really inclusive really safe space nobody like so this American expression I've learned uh, that I really love like no one yucks anyone else's yum right (laughs) in that space we can all say you could be your BTS fan but you could also be like me and say like I literally can't tell them apart like I don't know who is who and it's completely fine to be either or or neither of those people um so thank you for creating creating that space because um i think for for many of us especially in these kind of covid times um it's been a real a real kind of place to find some joy in our daily lives yeah honestly i just truly don't know what i would do without it so so much gratitude and also i don't know what i would do if i didn't have bts occupying <laughs> 85% of my brain. So I would love to know what that mental space looks like to have in one day because I don't have that space anymore. It's just gone. And that's a whole other madness that we don't need to get into today. But um, today we are here to talk about um, a historical drama. And that is something that is an extra special treat and something I'm really, I would love to do more of, frankly, because I am. Um, probably the only person on the pod who willingly and happily watches historicals and actively seeks them out, both in um, shows, but also in, um, in fiction as well. Yeah. So So, I'm really, I'm really happy. I'm really happy that you guys are happy to cover this as well, or that you're happy to cover this as well. Um, Because I come at this from two angles. So um, for those of you who don't know me from the other pod, um, I'm British born Chinese. So I grew up watching Hong Kong dramas. um, And I really feel like, so I'm Gen X, so I really felt like I I grew up in the golden era of Hong Kong dramas. Like they are not as good as they were back when I was, I mean, that's an acknowledged fact. That's not me just being biased and nostalgic about how great TV was back then. But Tony Leung, who was just in Shang-Chi, like he was my first ever crush. And he was on TV doing his dramas when I was growing up. Um, And so it was really amazing actors. Um, But obviously uh, historical court dramas for me are quite uh, familiar because it's what I grew up with. So I watched, you know, Asian, Hong Kong Asian uh, court dramas set in Chinese historical times way before I I watched a Jane Austen. Um, So they're very kind of familiar to me uh, from that side. Um, But I'm also a massive, massive historical romance fan. So I, that's my kind of bread and butter. And when I pick up a romance, um, I love Regency romances and I've read them pretty uh pretty much since I was I was young so for me this is kind of like the meeting of two worlds so it's really great that this pod is that we're covering historical dramas as well yeah and you actually um 
are an aspiring historical romance novelist, correct? Yes, yes, I am. Aspiring is definitely the word. <laughs> no, no, I think that's fantastic. The very first book that I ever finished, um, I wrote in 2000, like 10, 11, and that was a historical romance. I set it on a convict ship going to Australia and I still think it's awesome and it's a total garbage fire, <laughs> but I still like the core idea. I want to read it. <laughs> the, setting, read it. the setting was rad. The book is like, no, it's actually problematic garbage fire probably <laughs> at this point, but I think that someday I have like a fantasy of salvaging it and doing something with it. Um, and just out of curiosity before we get in, because I always like talking to historical romance fans, um, what is your like, what's a go-to author or book that you love in historical romance? I think, like, the doyen of historical romance is probably Lisa Claypass. Um, and so probably my yes. favorite book of hers is The Devil in Winter, because uh, Sebastian is is the archetype break, uh, you know, brought yes. low by love. Um, and I love, I love her. Uh, but one of the ones, one of the authors that probably doesn't get as much attention uh, and she should do is Eliza Braden. So she wrote the Rescued from Ruin series, uh, which is trope-filled, universal, universal fantasy-filled, um, uh, and uh, some of my favorite books. So she's kind of put some of books that were in my top 10 now come from her her series. Um, so she's uh, so just check out the series. It's, it's a, a really good one. And she's currently writing some um, Highlander romances, which are also really good fun. Okay, well, thanks. I'm glad I asked that question because she's a new to me um, author. So I will check her out because, yeah, I really, really enjoy um, finding new historical romance authors as well. And with the Lisa Claypas series, I'm, I am really bad with titles, but the one that's the autumn is it, it happened one autumn. Yeah, so that's the Wallflower series. I feel like that, yeah, in Wallflower, I feel like that one gets underrated, but the romance, and if we're going to talk about the butter in that one, even though I do think Devil in Winter is fundamentally a better book, <laughs> I love the autumn one because apparently my butter is someone who's like, I can't stand you and can't stop kissing you. <laughs> and like the whole like first half of the book was just that. Like every time around you, I'm just making out with you. And I don't know why, because I don't even like you, yeah. but I totally do. It is a great book. I do really, like, yeah, I agree with you. That is underrated because it's usually Sebastian and Devil in, in Winter that has got all the attention. But I mean, it's a great, it's a great series. And it was, you know, obviously that the, the whole wallflower thing was hers and you know we now have tons and tons of wallflower romances because apparently that's butter to most of us as well um so it's great yes i mean how many of us have not felt like a wallflower at some point and the fact that you just casually threw doyen in there <laughs> is just a word that i don't think it's thrown around very often so i'm also very appreciative that we got to put that in <laughs> all right well let's get to it and um i think if it's cool with you i'll just kind of like read through this really quickly mm -hmm. And I'm going to edit this part out where I'm like telling you what I'm doing, but um, is that cool? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. I just do that and then we'll kind of like riff. Okay. So during the Joseon era, there's evidence that identical, you know, same gender twins were acceptable. However, the birth of fraternal different gender twins was a considerable cause for concern. And, you know, reading around and doing, you know, cursory research, it seems to be due to this belief that, um, there was like a superstition that fraternal twins were husband and wife in their past life and their feelings for each other lingered. And that is a reason that they were born as twin brother and sister in this lifetime. So um, 
you know, these twins, despite being related by blood, there was like this idea that maybe they were inappropriate to be raised together. And within Confucian culture and within like many cultures, there was like a high motivation to like not have incest. Yes. And so if this unlikely situation happened, it was pretty acceptable to give up one of them. And Josen was a time, like a very patriarchal system. So generally it would be the baby girl who might've been um, killed or given up. So King's Affection, which came out 2021, um, kind of plays on this premise. The queen gives birth to a healthy baby boy, yay. Except like, as they're celebrating the birth of like the new crown prince, it's like one of those scenes where it's like, oops, like there's still more to push out. And in this case, we get uh, Del Me coming down the pipe, so to speak. And so, you know, this she's the fraternal twin and little sister whose presence is not welcome, um, like not a welcome addition to the family, to put it lightly. So the baby's ordered to be killed, but the queen isn't very excited to be complicit in infanticide. So with the help of a skillful acupuncturist, they fake the baby's death. And this baby is removed from the palace to hopefully live her best life. Except eventually she grows up and returns to the palace to work as a maid. She crosses paths with her brother, the crown prince, Li Hui, and you know, they look just like each other. And so in a case of mistaken identity, crown prince killed, Dal Mi is urged by the queen to take her brother's place. She assumes the role of the crown prince. She hides her gender. And of course, nothing will go wrong with this watertight plan, right? <laughs> so none of this is like really a spoiler. This is basically the like pretty convoluted setup to the drama that all plays out in the first episode. Um, and then, you know, throughout the drama, we add in a childhood first love who never got over um, Dalmi's memory and whose father is a court assassin slash bodyguard slash noble who's very adept with the business end of a sword. There's a very kind and cute cousin who might have gotten a clue that the king is actually a very lovely lady. There is a very unkind grandpa who will do anything to consolidate his power. And there's lots and lots of breast binding and you get yourself one wild ride through 20 episodes. What do you say, Sarah? <laughs> See, that's butter. Like there's like just so much trope filled joy in that. I remember reading the synopsis and I was like, right, that's it. I'm going for it. Even though I think it was still dropping live and I generally like to wait so I can binge slash prepare myself for a potentially not happy ever after ending but I I, uh, I started watching it before it finished dropping it was um yeah it had just so appealing to me yeah same I I've been more and more open-minded to watching stuff now live I used to just wait and um this was one that yeah I felt like I wasn't willing to wait and I kind of wanted to jump in and try it out as well so how we're going to do this is structured pretty similar to what we normally do, which is we're going to have a non-spoiler section where we're going to talk kind of more broadly about like the bigger, you know, themes of the story and just a little bit more. If you haven't seen the drama, you're safe to hang out in the space and, um, you know, hear a little unless you want to go in completely not knowing anything. But, you know, this is a very high level discussion. And then we're going to shift gears into a more intentional spoiler section where we'll talk about you know, some of the twists and turns of this plot, and we'll warn you ahead of time if you want to bow out. So getting into it, um, 
Okay, <laughs> not to be biased, but why are historical romances the best? And what are folks missing out if they seek to avoid them? <laughs> this is like the essay <laughs> question for the historical romance fan. Um, but yes, definitely for me, it's conflict. So we've got so many different layers of conflict and barriers to overcome. Uh, there's obviously a lot of external rules, society, parents, elders uh, have a say in who you should love and who you should be with. Um, there's differences in politics, class, arranged marriages. And then also internally, internal conflict, uh, generally the heroes, heroines have little or no experience of past relationships and love. So there's often that to explore. And there's often a social structure and expected behavior versus that battle of being an individual and, and how much independence a character can have and pursue within those societal expectations. Um, but that breaking rules is, as I've learned in the Universal Fantasy book, <laughs> butter. So we think Daphne being in the garden with Simon in Bridgerton, like, oh, she's in the garden, or Elizabeth Bennet without a chaperone, without a chaperone <laughs> like alone with him in the garden, or uh, for Jane Austen, like Elizabeth Bennet actually refusing Darcy, like, whoa, you know, people don't do that. Um, and also the stakes are so much higher, and as, as is proven in this drama, um, people can die uh, your family could be cast out. Any decision that you make about who you marry or, or the people that you are with could genuinely harm not only your own future, but that of your sisters and your family. Um, so it's really high stakes. Um, I also think that there are barriers to intimacy. Um, I mean, this is maybe less of a case in Korean dramas, which tend to be quite chaste anyway, uh, but certainly in Western historical romances, um, although they the, they get heated and the heat levels are pretty high, um, that kind of barrier to intimacy uh, is, is, is more of a slow burn. And then for me also tropes are more easily believable. So you do need, uh, you know, arranged marriages are obviously very common. So you have marriages convenience, marrying money for a title, all of those kind of situations that put our characters uh, in enforced situations together, I love. Look, I had very nothing to add to that because I feel like you really like made that case and signed, sealed and delivered it <laughs> and just wanted to like put my stamp of approval next to it, especially the trope part too, because, you know, I do think if you're really into romance, you know, you're usually a pretty high, you like tropes and it's fun to just sometimes get to player to be around tropes that you're not interacting with as much in contemporary, like the ones that you've mentioned, of course, Sometimes we do have a marriage of convenience in contemporary romance or a gender identity, like a hidden gender identity, but it's just not as common. And so I really think that, that is, that's part of what makes it really delightful. And so just no shade to Amy and Megan who aren't here today, but for some people, let's just put that in quotes, people, <laughs> too much court politics is off-putting for some. Do you think King's affection is um, politics heavy? So judging on the yardstick of other historical dramas I've watched, uh, and I've actually only seen Mr. Queen and Mr. Sunshine. This is my first non-Mr. historical. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually found this less than Mr. Queen, which is actually surprising because it's uh, definitely one you think of as more of a comedy um, historical uh, rather than a drama one, which King's Affection is. Um, but I found um, that 
uh, where in Mr. Queen we have two dowagers and lots of relatives to keep track of. Here, there's basically one bad grandpa whose motivations are pretty clear and his henchmen. And I also found that there weren't too many people that looked the same because I found that quite confusing in Mr. Queen at the start, working out who's who. Um, and here, although there are ministers who look the same, they're kind of like more side, side characters. So I think straight from the bat, I kind of knew who was who and it was definitely a lot less confusing. Yeah, I, um, I've seen more historicals than this, but I think some of the things like, I, I think some of it's just like the palace life convention too, of like where people are wearing similar costumes and things like that. It can feel like that setup sometimes can be confusing. And um, my esteemed co-hosts definitely, um, you know, the two dowagers plus relatives and Mr. Queen was not a selling point to them. <laughs> In fact, my heart <laughs> still hurts when Amy told me she was fast forwarding through parts of it. <laughs> I know, uh, I know it breaks I my heart, that. but you know, um, I'm also going to say they don't actually really like to read historical romance either. And I really appreciate people liking what they like, but, you know, I just want to put it out there that if you're thinking that you don't like historicals and a lot of it has to do with palace intrigue and things like that, I thought I hated office romances. Like for me, if somebody was like, oh, this is an office romance, I would think of fluorescent lights, which are never flattering. <laughs> I would think of copier machines. <laughs> I would think of bad coffee. I would think of conference tables and not like to do sexy things on to like sit in boring meetings at. And that just did not inspire my dreams. But then I realized that I loved office romances because I tried them. <laughs> and so if you think you dislike historicals, <laughs> either in books or dramas, try them. And again, beyond just getting like some of the tropes that you don't normally get to experience, I feel like historicals also offer this element of fantasy, but without um, paranormal aspects. Not that I don't like paranormals, but I feel like there's like this escapist fantasy and going back in time with like the costuming and the sets and things like that. Oh yeah, definitely. I think there's definitely a fancy of just going and living somewhere else. Um, that's not real, right? Because we never dwell on the fact they probably didn't bathe much or brush their teeth ever. Um, but we just have beautiful costumes, like gorgeous settings, really, really lovely uh, scenery. Uh, and we can kind of just transport ourselves into those alternative universes, which are still, as you said, not fantasy, but real kind of mm. yes and then you know I I've I grew up loving I mean I don't know if there's any you know like British costume drama that I haven't watched and I you know historical I read a lot a lot of historical romance mostly set in the UK and big ball gown focus I'm always here for a good ball gown but now I really have to say that I've become a big fan of the hairpins from Korean dramas <laughs> as well because wow I wish I had awesome hair and could rock a hairpin sometimes and have but, a hero um, who pick out a hairpin that was yeah made for you right <laughs> yeah made for you special so that made me think a little bit about like obviously um Joseon's set romances are quite different to the conventions that you know many of us who also are you know big romance fans are usually experiencing like a regency setting not always but I would say that that's like very commonly like the if you're going to pick up a historical romance the most common setting yeah yeah you know sure sometimes you're going to be in medieval times sometimes you might be in Victorian age outliers bound even beyond that but really you're probably going to be in the regency 
And just like if you're going to watch a uh, Korean historical, you know, you could get Goryeo, you could get another time period, but you're probably going to get Joseon. <laughs> so, you know, how are they similar or different to like, how do you think Joseon romances are similar or different to some of the conventions that we might expect to see in a Regency romance? And, you know, in my uh, benefit of sometimes getting to come up with questions, I get to answer them too. And so this is great. <laughs> But for me, like in pondering this, one thing that really jumped out to me is that in Joseon era romances, most, again, not all. So please just remember, like I'm putting caveats into all of this. <laughs> like most of the stories focus on the love of a king and getting the love of a king. And then in the Regency era, like anything from Jane Austen to like now the more typical historical romances of our time, the heroes, like we're, we're usually delving into nobility you know, dukes and earls, mostly dukes, dukes are very popular, down to like the landed gentry. So untitled, but upper class. But I can't think of a single regency where someone's going to go get the king, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, we're looking at the Joseon dynastic kingdom is spanning five centuries and the regency period is technically less than a decade. And this was the time when King George of the Revolutionary War, or, you know, if you're Sarah, maybe the American War, <laughs> you know, it depends on what side of the pond you live on to define that, you know, well, he had gone mad basically at this point and his eldest son was in control as the regent. And, you know, nothing on the historical record makes it sound like either of them were really particular dreamboats. So I can see why there was never like a real bent to try to like get with them in any of our fiction. But I just want to raise the idea that like, if you enjoy historical romance from the West, you are probably reading something or watching something set in the Regency. And just like in Korean dramas, you can get those other time periods. There is the sense that like, you know, you're probably going to end up in Joseon. And also Joseon stories are also very invested as a result in like this palace intrigue and power because we're kind of playing at the level of the kings. Whereas Regencies are more kind of like what you would think with like Jane Austen as like a comedy of manners where, you know, at the time she was, I always still think it's really important to point out too, this is like a detour for me, that Jane Austen wasn't a historical romance writer. Like we think of her now as historical romance, but she was a contemporary romance writer at her time. Yeah. And she was very much taking a critical eye to like the affectations and life of her, her <laughs> society that was all around us. So even though we're defining her as historical romance, she was writing of her time. You know, when you were watching now Pride and Prejudice or something, you know, there is kind of this comedy of manners taking place. And then in these more um, modern romances that we would read about or take Bridgerton, for example, you're going to find yourself mostly involved somehow orbiting around a very rakish duke. And the heat level in modern his Western historical romances is very spicy. And like you mentioned, it's spicy, even though there was likely no real good dentistry or regular bathing. But that's why this is all fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, yeah, I very much agree. So, I mean, I think some of the differences are in the societal rules, obviously still heavily patriarchal. Uh, so in Joseon, it was obviously Confucian rules and the whole court hierarchy and the hierarchy of um, elder people being of a higher hierarchy than younger people, of men being a higher hierarchy than women, um, as well as obviously in the court. Whereas in the Regency, it's more about the ton um, or the upper 10,000. Um, and though you're presented at court, 
it's actually rarely a scene that we see in the historical romance books. Um, even though in Bridgerton there was that scene, that was actually inserted, yeah. it wasn't Good in point. the book. Um, so, so there isn't really this kind of fixation with the court and court drama in Regency romances. Um, but obviously the similarities are in the role of women. So they are still very much in both sets, bargaining chips for power in marriages. Um, they still face the pressure to produce male heirs, to guarantee primogenitor. And that is still you know, very much the same, very much talking about the role of women. And I think where Korean dramas and modern historical romances are meeting is in that independent heroine that is fighting against their society rules. Uh, and we are rooting for her to kind of live the life that she wants uh, to choose in a period where choice as a woman was very limited. And also I think there's always many sword fights in Joseon drama, so they, they we often get kind of extended sword fights, uh, whereas uh, in Regencies we're really just, you know, a couple of people pacing apart in a duel. That's as far as we would get with a sword fight. They um, rarely so if you're in a duel. They hardly ever even get to the duel part, do they? No, they do. They threaten the threaten the duel. The duel's always kind of, yeah, it's a it's a place of conflict where you can't go, like you've behaved badly, you've met somebody in a garden, um, you know, and uh taken their sister's honor and therefore I'm gonna fight you in a duel. But yeah, if if sword fights are are your thing, and like I said, I used to come from Hong Kong dramas, historical dramas. So a lot of the Hong Kong historical dramas were actually kung fu, like wuxia, um, you know, uh, series. Uh, really, really long involved ones, but loads and loads of really good fight scenes and wire work and and all of that. So I think that kind of brings that kind of fighting tradition into historical dramas. So yeah, and there are some good ones in King's Affection. Yeah, thanks. That's a really good point. And uh, yeah, just the fact that Korean historical dramas, and I'm just going to go with romance because we're kind of speaking more about romances today, is they're much more bloody, like you said, (laughs) like there is a lot more fighting and people, you know, they're going to get, they're going to get cut down and die. Whereas, yeah, that's not really happening. (laughs) Lots, lots more, lots more dying, 10 out of 10 more dying (laughs) in Joseon dramas, which, you know, the stakes feel higher. It's not like you just get taken yeah. away to go live yeah. at, you know, a cottage by the sea to be a spinster forever. All right. So speaking of tropes that we get to have way more of in historicals, hidden genders. So for this trope, is this a hell yeah or an ugh, no? So for me, unexpectedly, hell yeah, for me, actually, um, it isn't, obviously it isn't one that we kind of come up with Regency romances. I was trying to think of a comp uh, and I couldn't really think of one. There's the scenes where uh, a heroine might dress up as a guy, like a little bit to maybe go out at night uh, incognito, but not, you know, something carried all the way through. Um, So I just felt like the writers especially had a lot of fun with the reverse gender trope in here as the female lead was the male and the male lead was our beta hero, which we will speak about more later on in the pod. But some really, some of my really favorite fun scenes in this drama were playing with that trope of of him um, kind of mooning around with some flowers or like um, getting really dreamy over the male like over the king uh the the crown prince sorry and he was fighting or practicing fighting with his um fellow warriors and he'd get really swoony 
um, or uh, the present where he got a present from her and he was just twirling around with it. Um, I really, really loved I really loved all of those scenes and how much fun they had with them. And actually it challenged me as well because it made me realize just how gendered a lot of these scenes are uh, and actually helped to reflect back at me that, you know, in all K-dramas that I watch, non-historical and historical, that they, um, that all of these scenes are very much like female scenes, right? Ones that I've definitely recognized, definitely, definitely seen before, but never a guy doing them. I think that is really what was so delightful in this. And when it comes to hidden gender tropes, like you're right, I can't really think of any experience I've had that's been like a long-standing where like the character, you know, like part of like the core premise of the book is that the character is going to be hiding their um their gender identity for a long period of time in the book. I know that I've been trying to convince my agent for over a year now that I think a historical retelling of coffee prints would go down a treat in like a kind of like Victorian era setting. Uh, I don't believe that she is sold on it, but I know I'm yeah. right. And so that's just something I have to write. Keep going, keep going. I want to read that book. Yes, it's ghee. It's the ghee. It's the it's butter ghee. and the ghee. So for me, you know, was it a hell yeah or like a no? I just say that I, I wasn't against them. It's just not that common. Um, but I would say that now becoming you know, much more burst after, you know, 60 plus K-dramas, I'd say it's really relatively common in Joseon historicals, and I'm not sad about it. And I think that a big reason why is that I really, really love the idea, and this was like a big part of why I love Coffee Prints too, is that I love this idea of someone falling in love with the person and not the gender and how that journey looks, because I think it does have usually lots of really good angst, but like, they eventually, you know, the person who's like, you know, falling in love ends up having to kind of confront and then strip off some of their like societal indoctrination. And I always find that really lovely. Um, but my gripe with this trope is that I feel like I often lose interest in the story once the gender is revealed, because many times this hidden gender feels like the core conflict in the romance. And then once it's like out in the open, everything feels like it gets a little more flat in the relationship. And then it's replaced by these larger palace intrigue plots, which usually aren't my favorite parts to the stories. Like not always, but I would say that like nine times out of 10, like the palace intrigue is kind of like, you know, it's, it's around and it serves its point, but I don't want to like, I'm not tuning in to like get the next part of the palace intrigue. And for me, King's affection really skirts this issue because Delmi is the king. And so every other time I've seen this, it's like the king is catching feelings for the tutor or the eunuch in disguise. But this time the stakes were way higher because the person, you know, she's hiding her identity. And even when he discovers like who she really is, which isn't a spoiler, because I think if you're watching this, like, you know, that's eventually happening. Like she's still like, she's actually at this point, like the king. And so I felt like that conflict was really able to hold for the entire drama. Yeah. I agree. So I wanted to insert a question uh, in this non-spoiler section. Uh, I think we've done a, a relatively mm. good job of persuading, but say if I'm a listener and I'm out there listening and thinking, you know, I might watch this, I might give it a go. What more can you tell me without spoilers to persuade me? I think you're doing a pretty persuasive job. So why don't you start? <laughs> Well, I would say I really love the pacing. So although it's 20 episodes and that might put you off, um, I think this drama is paced really well. 
it knows the story it wants to tell and it's really confident with how it wants to tell it. There's no saggy parts, the plot keeps driving through and all the way I was thinking I'm working out how are they going to resolve the central conflict and they do really well with kind of think, making you think oh it's going to go this way, oh it's going to go that way and right up until literally the final episode we still don't know What's going to happen? Is there even going to be a happy ever after? Are they going to kill off some of the central characters? Uh, and because the start of this drama is pretty brutal in terms of the, the setup, I think it then uh, raises those expectations or lowers expectations that they're going to be safe. You know, they they might go somewhere and take out some character that you really love because there's no guarantee it will it will end well for anyone. Um, and, and I think, uh, to Leah's point, she did a really great uh, sell on gender swaps, I think. This is, this is you know, done differently. So Raroon um, plays Jiwon, and he's a totally lovable beta. Uh, and we will speak more about him. Um, but I haven't seen that kind of beta male hero in historical drama. And I think this, uh, this is done so well. Yeah, I think he's probably one of the best betas that I've seen full stop in uh, a Korean drama, uh, contemporary or historical. So I would say if you are looking for a non-spoiler to persuade you, if you love a good beta hero, or you're just curious, like you'd like to know more about these betas, <laughs> this is an excellent, excellent beta. And I feel like just, you know, who isn't tired of toxic masculinity? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just so refreshing to see like a complete repudiation of toxic masculinity. And I know we had like touched on BTS really early on and just kind of like a quick way, but it's part of the, like the reason why, you know, I enjoy, um, you know, being part of like the BTS army fandom so much as I feel like there's like this real repudiation of like so many of these like very coded masculine things where really at the end of the day, toxic I feel like the patriarchy hurts men so much and yes. takes yeah. away so much joy that they could be experiencing in like terms of everything from personal grooming to having more permission to have emotion and friendships yeah. and connecting. And so, yeah, I just felt like in watching this, I got to like have this like relaxing thing of like, oh, here's somebody who is like not buying into any of that stuff that's like actively hurting them and getting to um, really just be vulnerable and emotional and still be very masculine like even like though some of the stuff was like very intentionally kind of funny poking like oh he's more feminine picking flowers or playing with the beads and things like that and that was really fun I think at the end of the day like nobody's going to watch this and feel like um you know Jiwoon isn't very masculine like he's incredibly masculine he's just very healthy about it <laughs> really well put <laughs> if you enjoy our podcast you have our patrons to thank, at least in part. Afternoon of Delight Patreon allows us to keep creating content for y'all to enjoy. Thank you so much to everyone who is supporting us there. And not to brag, but our Patreon community is pretty awesome. And you can join at a tier that feels good to you. Gain access to fun perks like K-drama posts, monthly Patreon-only bonus podcasts, and even a live K-drama support group on Zoom because we know firsthand what it's like to have no one to talk to about those crazy plot twists, amazing characters, and all those feelings. And look, no one should have to walk that walk alone. So learn more by visiting afternoonadelight.com. That's www 
www.afternoonadelight.com. And hey, while you're on the website, you can check out Afternoon Delight podcast merch, find links to book recommendations, bop along to our K-pop recs, glow up your skin with K-merch recs, find all of our social media and a link to our email so you can send us recommendations or feedback. And hey, while you're at it, why don't you pop over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review? It really helps with our discoverability. Gamsamnida. All right. So if you have not seen King's Affection and you want to go no further with spoilers, this is the time to bounce out, watch it and come back and listen. Or if you've seen it and you want to hear more or, you know, you just don't mind spoilers that much because there's a lot of wildcats out there who don't mind listening to spoilers. Stick around because that's what we're going to get into right now. All right. So First up, we cannot go any further without talking about the hot, dimpled, good guy cousin Hyun, who has known the truth about Hui for years, kept the big gender, you know, hidden gender secret, and he loves her for the person she is now. And, you know, the thing is, is that like Jiwoon has never gotten over his first love, Dalmi, who really is, you know, Hui. Um... But let's be real, like Hui's changed a lot since that girl. Like she's had to live as her brother, the king now for a long time. So that idea is, is basically like what I'm trying to get at is we have a primary love story where really the setup is like, you were my first love, my childhood love, which we've gotten mm, like a thousand times in drama. Then we have this like enticing cousin, second male lead, who's like, look, I know who you really are and I've kept the secret and I've also been engaging with you on a daily basis forever and know you as the person you are now and totally love you. So given that being the case, did you have second male lead syndrome or were you satisfied with the primary romance? Uh, a bit of both. I mean, but I totally had second lead syndrome because I just love Hyun. How could you not love someone so good and kind and loyal um and especially as for a hot moment now we're in the spoiler section there's a hot moment where he gets stabbed and I literally went no even though it was the middle of the night and I was gonna Mm -hmm. wake my family up because I really thought they would they'd killed him and I really knew that this drama was totally capable of going there and doing that to him um uh but thankfully he wasn't but I guess what I can, what crushed it for me with him was that he'd known all along and he kept that secret that he knew and he just quietly supported her. He had her back, been her friend when she must have been so completely, utterly lonely. And he's just the equivalent of that faithful guy who's, you know, in literature, that faithful guy who's utterly loyal to the heroine, um, who you love, but just isn't destined to be the hero. Um, but I mean, I think for her, for Lee, I think... It's obviously, uh, yes, first love and eye roll. Um, But I think it's more meaningful in this drama because it was the last time she got to be herself and authentically live in her own skin. So I think there's an element of, and I think the drama does really well on highlighting just how much that relationship that she had with him when she was young meant to her because it was a link to a past self that that she's had to bury. uh, and, uh, And it really adds that level level of potency um but also i mean it's rawoon being a puppy right so i mean who who wouldn't fall in love with with him as much as i loved Hyun, and he is uh uh in massive need of one of your second male lead sos's leah yeah he was great and i think 
yes to everything. I like wanted to like be slapping the wall as you were talking. And then I was like, that's gonna be really noisy and distracting. But <laughs> I think that like when he finally, you know, when you find out how he really feels, cause he confesses to the hero to Jiwoon that, look, I've loved her this whole time, but like that would yeah. be a burden for her too. And I don't want to give her that burden of like my love. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, so, oh, like repressed love is oh, never not going to yeah. be my thing. so bad, so bad. <laughs> and it's funny because but. I think the the character, the, the the Korean word for that word for burden is actually a Chinese word. So for me, when I hear it, I know what it is without having to read the subtitles. Um, and it's full dam in Cantonese, but it it kind of carries these layers of meaning of this not just burden, but this kind of um idea that uh it's 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 unwelcome to to put that on you right it, you've got a duty to not put that burden on someone else it's so there's kind of a confusion kind of high, uh, confusion kind of thing of like how I should behave with you in that word of you need to ensure at all times that your behavior is not putting a burden on other people as well so there's like these that, that word and that that scene that he you know that where he did this it was yeah like you said just oh really broke my heart so can you say the word again? Because I really love that. Uh, so in Cantonese, it's full down. Uh, and I think in Korean, it's just kind of sounds similar. So that when I hear it, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And yeah, it is. And it's a word we don't have, right? I think it's got the, I mean, burden is a good good translation, but it doesn't have that layer of, of, of duty of, yeah. um, you know, when you're carrying yourself in society, you need to be at all times aware of the demands you're placing on other people um, and, and not to be a burden to them. And I think it's a real common theme in Korean dramas um, because of this added layer of, of societal kind of, yeah, uh, you know, your role in it and, uh, and being aware of other people's um, demands and needs and not being a burden on them. That yeah. was Hyun. I mean, that was Hyun that the was whole him. time. Yeah. And, you know, at the beginning, I really was afraid he was going to go the route of Sad Cousin from Mr. Queen. So shout oh, out. I'm not going to give spoilers. I'd love to, but I'm not. But not in Wu, who crushed the role of Sad Cousin and Mr. Queen. Love and, Sad Cousin. Ugh, just so much love for Sad Cousin. Um, but then I just was like, okay, his path is to like, he's going out nobly in service to crown in his heart. And so when he got stabbed, especially like his brother was like <laughs> the one doing the stabbing. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I was like, oh man. So I was really pleasantly surprised that he ended up A, alive and B, the king. <laughs> so like that was a real win for me across the board, except for my quibble that we didn't get a secondary romance for him because he absolutely deserved one. Like he deserved one in the show. There was time. There was plenty of time to have given him at least the hint of a secondary romance. Yeah, because actually there were um, spare female characters around. Great spare female characters <laughs> who like were not going to be with the king. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I really felt like that was kind of a waste of developing some of the female characters who I thought were... Um, you know reasonably well developed for being like plot fodder yeah. yeah and I would have liked to have seen one kind of like ending up more on his side but I felt like he was such a good second male lead that really it's just by the grace and power of Rowoon that he 
and like Rohun crushing his performance that I didn't root for Hyun because I would say that usually when we get this like you were my first love and that's the primary justification for why the romance is endgame I'm out every time but um Rowan sold me on every aspect so that was a nice surprise and also I just want to draw like a really loose correlation to have you seen she was pretty <laughs> because, no, I because do you keep putting me off it you keep putting me off it every time you mention it you know, I'm so sorry <laughs> but I feel like really in many ways when I think about it this is very much like a bit of a historical she was pretty except like you know she was pretty was not like a bunch of murdering um but we have the first love convention and then we have the person who like knows who you are now and like and for whatever because she has curly hair and red cheeks, like her first love doesn't recognize her in the present day. So she's not like hiding her identity, but he's like now her boss and doesn't realize like that he loved her once upon a time. And um, now she's also like interacting with this colleague who loves her for who she is now. And that one really, like I've never had second lead as much as I did in that drama because they tried to in the end shoehorn that like first love trumps all thing to such a failure when the second lead was very much a hyun and that like, I love you, I support you. I'm just here to like be your person and, you know, deserved all the wins. So really it was just because Rowan was so good <laughs> that I was able to like, I think stomach it. Yeah, I totally agree with all your points, definitely. But also, I think for me, just one added layer was that as someone who loves an opposites attract romance, I felt that um, she really needed someone who had that layer of levelty. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we'll touch on this later, but that Rurun really was not only the hero, but also the comic relief in this drama. Yes. And I felt Hyun was maybe a little bit too sad cousin uh, for her. Um, so... Yeah, very, very true. Like he was going to get your taxes paid on time, <laughs> whereas like <laughs> would make you laugh. But like, let's be real. He also was like a slash doctor healer slash tutor swordsman. slash yeah. swordsman yeah. slash, you know, give him a loot, probably. Yeah. Oh, my God. OK, so OK, this next one's yours, actually. So on that, since we've been speaking about beta heroes or beta, we've got a beta hero but beta historical heroes are actually pretty rare. We always have so many kings and crown princes and dukes and warriors. How do you think King's affection and Rarun especially nails the beta hero? Well, I'm just about to answer this as a military plane just came in from the bay <laughs> overhead, so apologies. So, okay, so Rarun, um playing Jung Ji-woon, like I said, he carried the whole drama for me. So that's not to diminish the other performances because really there were no slouches. I think everyone did a great job in the cast, but this really was Ji Un's universe and we were just all living in it. <laughs> so from skipping along picking flowers to literally falling in Li Hui's arms to caring for his crew, like back at the medicine, hospital, I guess, <laughs> the medicine area. Center, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to trying to emotionally understand his emotionally unavailable father he was like this living cinnamon roll covered in icing that I would happily eat for breakfast <laughs> and when he went out and lit all the lanterns so that she didn't have to walk in the dark it was like an act of violence on my heart and I never felt like as an actor he never played the character's beta traits as ironic either 
um, I feel like he played them really honestly. And so even though he was very much draped in plot armor and could one-handedly beat all the baddies with a sword, like how many times was it like him against like 30 people? Um, I felt like, you know, even then he was still like beta doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you absolutely nailed it. I completely agree. I think he was beta even if there wasn't a gender swap. So obviously the gender swap allows us as, as viewers to enjoy his role even more but he was a beater anyway. And I think also the physicality, so he's very, very tall. Um, so there's a real height difference between um, um, him and, and Li Hui. Um, but I think in his physicality, he really excelled because he was such a gentle giant. So even when he's towering over her physically, he's always so protected of her, so careful with her. Uh, and when she's being all alpha and he's swooning and he's melting and he's just so believable and I just want to wrap him up and cuddle him up he's just oh my god such I love that you just mentioned that though because she she is alpha and I you know fight for my way I did not love as much as Megan did but I did love aspects of it a lot and that like Dong Man was always swooning over his like alpha lady yeah and to see someone as like big and hunky and powerful as Park Sojun doing that, I felt very similar to this. Yes, good comp, yeah, yeah. So how much and what made you cry in this drama? So I'm gonna be honest, I, I love a cathartic cry. I remember when Amy was talking about this, how K-dramas had become an emotional outlet for her during lockdown. And I personally hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, but then I realized, that yeah it's totally true and that for me it's like a safe way to cry over a character's pain that feels less vulnerable obviously um but that still gives me a kind of cathartic release um so this drama had me crying from the very first episode and pretty much throughout the drama but I am a crier so don't benchmark yourself against me um but I but I definitely I just definitely loved it for, for how many things made me cry because it wasn't just the romance as well so uh, and obviously it wasn't also just people dying it was it was so much of the relationships and and the hidden secrets and the conflicts um but one of the scenes that really really made me sob which was towards the end and it's only a really small scene but it's back in there kind of like I termed it their love shack you know their secret house mm -hmm. that no one else knew existed. that's in the middle of the palace that's in the middle of the palace <laughs> but it's also used in the red sleeve so i've had lots of fun I'm, i've been watching the red oh, sleeve. Okay. i watched the red sleeve after this and and obviously they share the same set because obviously there's only really one joseph court that everybody uses but they also have this love shack in it and i was like oh it's the love shack anyway so she's in the love shack and then she's burning the very last of her treasured possessions um from her first from her daomi life and it's the last remnants of who she was and of her first love and even these she can't keep now because they're too dangerous and it's like she finally mm -hmm. has to like like she's just completely lost herself so not only she's given up she's now lived more of her life pretending to be her brother than she has her own actual life and then she has to also give up these treasured possessions it was ah, oh, just made me melt yeah it was really good and now that you've also said this it's made me think I wonder how much you know, like when they're scheduling shoots for shows, 
like if there's ever like you know two or three dramas shooting in the same pet like you know like coordinating like well we're gonna be in the love shack you know from monday to thursday and then we'll be moving over to like you know the main plaza and you guys can have that section <laughs> i just wonder like how coordinating because you're right they they're they sharing use the same set yeah. yeah, and it's the same bridge as well, you know, in Nine Tailed and Tell the Nine Tailed when they go back to the historical. But I'm also watching Moonshine currently live, and and I was thinking exactly this scheduling thing because they're in a much tinier room for their court because Moonshine is not really a court drama, but there are scenes with the king, and they're in a much much tinier room. <laughs> I'm just like, I bet they were busy <laughs> with either the Red Sleeve or King's Affection or they Royal Inspector Joy, or yeah, or the one of the other. The Joseph and Janitor's closet. They're like, do your best. <laughs> do your best. Yeah, pretend this is your court. <laughs> so honestly, I I am a bit of a crier and I didn't cry a lot in this drama, but it's always like I'm an unpredictable crier too. Like it's always hard to know what it's gonna get me. But I cried in this drama twice. And it was both um both times were when kids were killed. So when Inspector Jung puts the arrow through the real um Lee Hui's heart at the beginning, like I got some waterworks there because that little kid was just so cute and so confused with this huge arrow like right in the middle of their chest and I think I was just like honestly shocked to see him killed like obviously that was like a premise that made the move the show happen and I was still surprised to like watch him die it just felt like a very like like it really felt like a hardcore death scene, even though it wasn't like crazy violent buckets of blood, whatever. It just felt like, oh my God, like we're really, like you're killing a kid at close range. Yeah. Um, and then the other time I cried was when uh, Dalmi's half brother got taken down in like the big end game bloodbath. Oh yeah. Uh, did not see that coming. No. <laughs> and I, I, Cause I think the drama was really going for like, he's end game right she's gonna install him on the throne and then she's gonna get her happy ever after after that and then they yeah. killed him and you're like oh my god and then you're like well now what yeah. i have no idea <laughs> and he was just so like sweet and didn't want it and just wanted his what he perceived to be his brother um to love him and wasn't part of like any of like the nasty plotting around to like put him in as you know the usurper to the crown and he was just like such a sweet like he was too young to be a patsy yeah and then just like throat slit dead and you were just like dang um all right so who gave you this was a very beta focused show um but who gave you your alpha feels in this drama so for me my main two were the bodyguard and Inspector mm -hmm. Jung, so uh, Ji Woon's dad. And I love that this drama <laughs> made me fall for someone much closer to my actual age, as well as someone who looks 12. So firstly, Inspector Jung, I mean, I was prepared for him to be just a badass henchman uh, and kid murderer, and also the patriarchal dad who added that layer of parental, you should behave in this way to keep the family's honor kind of plot device guy. But obviously, this is a script writer who knows what they're doing. And actually, what he had was a whole arc. Um, and obviously, where he started was very much not where he ended up. And, and I think, you know, he had a redemptive uh, ending that was as suitable, I think, as, 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 as someone, uh, I mean, not totally redeeming him, because obviously, he's a child murderer, but enough to make his character live in that gray space. Um, 
and the alpha feels I got from him were were kind of the villain ones where he's kind of this omniscient, omnipresent, always calculating, thinking, strategizing guy. Um, so he's number one. Number two was the bodyguard. I mean, who won't fall for a guy who basically barely speaks but looks like an angel in badass Joseph clothes? Even even if he did make me feel like a really thirsty Atuma, as he looked 12. But I looked him up, he's, he's actually 24. He's an idol played by Choi Byung-chan, um, and I checked. Um, but um, yeah, and, if, and, and funnily enough, like I said, um, he was just so attractive, just being strong and, and silent. But he was like approximately 50% less attractive when he was actually in court gear and speaking. <laughs> Look, these bodyguards, I really, I know what, I know some exist. So if you are listening and you know, I need a really, really good K-drama historical bodyguard romance. <laughs> no king. I want the hot bodyguard because these bodyguards like crush it in their yeah. shows. Love in the Moonlight, the bodyguard. Like I don't want to watch Vincenzo and I'm going to watch Vincenzo just because the bodyguard was so hot and he's in Vincenzo. <laughs> and makes me feel like the thirstiest Ajuma because of it so yeah I get it I get it um so yeah let's just like talk on Inspector Jung for a second because do I like this character not really no did he murder my good little buddy at the start (laughs) yeah like crossbowed I mean like hard so as a result like I don't feel totally comfortable putting him in that like category of bad daddy that can take me behind the tool shed and make me hate myself the next day But I do think that saying this also makes me a hypocrite because I do 10 out of 10 think that my bad bae, Anoju from Lalo Soiler, I think Anoju is killing underage kids. Yeah. I mean, like I'm sure of it. So, uh, but the thing is that I didn't have to watch it on screen and like a slow-mo bleed out. But in real life, uh, Bae Subin, who plays Inspector Jung, he can get it. So he's mid forties. So, you know, I can opa him a bit, but he also gives like good face, good, good face when you get him out of that straggly facial hair. So I'm petitioning the universe for more of him. Like I look back and he does have like a reasonable amount of dramas to his credit. Nothing that like stood out to me as like something I like really knew. So I should try some and just see like what I'm pleasantly surprised by. But again, like this is another plea that I'm like manifesting out into K-drama land is like, I am not sad to watch very attractive younger actors living their best life. And I do stand by the fact that like, for whatever reason, 1990 and 91 were very good years for <laughs> Korean actor men to be born. Like Kang Han-Nul, like Park hong like there's just too many people. Like a lot of good people came out in 1991, but <laughs> You know, if we drop down into like the 70s, like we still gong use like 79 baby. And then like, you know, we can like make our way into like some of these like more well-seasoned men. We are going to be talking about this spoiler in an upcoming pod, but I would like to see there be like a little bit more of like the like mid forties hero romance. Like I just would like a little bit more just to make me feel like not so dirty. you're saying it's like the main the main the main like I want to see like some mean yeah rather than me just like thirsting over the hot dad like I'd like to see you know like we've got 39 coming out soon yeah um the drama and I 
feel like that's going to be really good. I'd like to see there be, you know, a little bit more of like that energy too. Like, I feel like I don't want to see personally or creatively 40 to be this cliff (laughs) that you like fall off of. And the next thing you know, you're like wearing a visor and like speed walking (laughs) at the park. And that's like your life. (laughs) I'm not there. I'm not ready for that yet. Yes. Let's manifest that. I can be behind that. (laughs) But yeah, good call on the alpha bodyguard too. He was very, very cute. All in black. So do you think Lee Hui was a believable male in the drama or were you wondering how everyone in the court was missing the bleeding obvious? Look, like in most gender swaps I've seen, um, I'm always like, duh, it's obviously a girl in that hat and robe, like very clearly. But in this, I really felt like Lee Hui was the alpha of the entire drama and it centered around one fact that she had such believable BDE or big dick energy, which I have to spill out because I've been using, at one point I used BDE on the Afternoon of Delight podcast, like asking like a question, like who brings real BDE to the show? And I had all these really sweet questions saying what's BDE. And then I just felt like this like super big pervert being like, well, it's big dick energy. (laughs) And so I'm just going to throw it out there. It's a term that like, I think a lot of people know, but I also am aware because of that, the amount of questions, I had like at least 12 questions. And then I was like, so shamed to have to answer it over and over. <laughs> um, but she did, like, she had the swagger as the king, the crown prince, and then the king. That was just completely insane. And I loved how she carried herself. And I think I was really, really invested Again, this makes me sound like a bit of a pervert, but when she got married, because when she got married, I was like, what the (laughs) hell is happening? (laughs) Like she just got married to a girl who thinks she's a man. Like what is next? I do not know how we are going to like get through like the (laughs) consummation of this situation. And I am like very curious. So then I realized, okay, the situation is going to be, we're going to have delay tactics, which we do lots of delaying, lots of just like, you know, we're just not there yet. And finally, like, you know, being that I guess I am a pervert, I was trying to think of all the ways that like, I was like, what choices do they have? Like, there's not many options and they're going to have to figure this one out, but I don't feel like this is a drama that's going there. So I don't know what's going to happen. And in the end, look, it just doesn't happen. But I will say that how she showed up in spaces like when she shifted into being like overtly and clearly female there was a shift yeah but she still retained this like core alpha presence but I really did feel like she wasn't um you know she wasn't as androgynous as the heroine from Coffee Prince but there was a lot more androgyny than I think that I've seen other gender swaps. I felt like, I don't know how to, I'm trying to like think of how to explain it. Cause it's like this very clean shaven, small little face that like didn't look like a guy that much, but the personality really, she just brought this energy that I feel like often like alpha personalities do get coded as more male. And that's what I felt like made me believe that she was like past making this work. Does that make sense? I kind of like babbled through that, but yeah. Yeah, it does. 
no, no, no. It just it totally makes sense. And I, and I and I agree with you because I totally cheered her on as she was hunting, shooting, sword fighting like a badass. Um, but she was also so smart. She had all the plans. She had the strategies. She was so brave. And I, yeah, absolutely agree with you that she was a true alpha. I mean, realistically, uh, no, she wasn't that believable as a man right now. <laughs> she just genuinely does look like a woman dressed as a man. But in this story fantasy, yes. And I really liked how they made her standoffish so that people wouldn't get too close. That was like, um, you know, advice I think her mum gave her when she was dying. And so she had this like distance rule that you had to stand far away from her. And for me, it just added that layer of kind of pathos that we knew her as Dalmi, that she was actually very sociable and friendly uh, and quite bubbly. And, and she had to be this really standoffish crown prince and how she must have just ached to have made her own friends and, and, um, and been that sociable yeah. person she mm, was. Sad. Tell me. So whose death affected you the most? Because look, lots of, lots of death in this movie. <laughs> There's a lot of death. There's a lot of death. Um, I think for me, even though I didn't actually, so for me, it was the, it was when the king died, when her, her dad died. Um, and not because I particularly mourned him as a character, but it was the letter because they kind of overplayed it, didn't they? They overplayed the letter to him dying. And I think that really, really killed me. Uh, and I think I'm just, I'm just a real sucker for that thing of when people say things to people after they've died yeah. that they didn't say in real life. Um, that, that kind of, um, that kind of scenario just really gets me because I, you know, obviously just think like, oh, you could have done that when you're alive and you could have had a relationship. Um, but it also, in him dying, it was just really raising the conflict and the danger for her own life. And I was really like, oh my God, where's this drama going to go? Yeah, it? absolutely. I felt like that was like what really got me so invested in it was these choices like you know the king like even though it's called the king's affection like when she became the king I was actually like oh my god she's like the king now yeah just like when she got married and I was like oh my god she has a queen now what <laughs> and I just want to touch really quickly it's not a death but I guess maybe the death of an idea is when she finally outs herself as a woman to her wife and you know really yes. it's the ultimate like it's it's not you it's me <laughs> um but it was done really well I thought yeah um really sensitively yeah, I yeah. thought it was done yeah quite lovely and I was like I hope they could kind of be friends I mean they can't be but it would be cool if they could be friends and then for me just the death that affected me I think I already talked about it the um it was the set it was the um when her half-brother the young prince died at the end did not again did not see that one coming did not see that coming yeah. So anything else that you want to get off your chest? Um, so for me, I mean, I really feel like the drama really nailed so much, but I, I really wanted more from the ending. I felt like we'd had 19 and a half episodes <laughs> of pain, conflict, drama that was slightly enlivened by a bit of puppy Varun. Um, but it wasn't, um, I don't know, joyful enough, I guess. Um, it felt a little bit flat the ending on the beach where we kind of got a bit of Hyun and bodyguard came back in. Um, it just, yeah, it just seemed to, to not kind of fit uh, and leave me with enough kind of satisfaction at the end, I guess. Like, I think they had uh, a really nice dream sequence where she 
kind of live this alternate like we saw this kind of alternate mm-hmm. life that she could have lived had she been allowed to be the twin sister of the king uh, and she wore this amazing dress which i want to say just um um thank you to grace for helping point out on my instagram because i said that she had these red dots on her cheeks and i was like i don't even know what that she looks like it's like a clown outfit uh, and grace actually said that it's uh in historical korean um they're to ward off ghosts so you so brides wear them so actually um to people who know oh, that's interesting their so Korean history. Photos of like Mongolian royalty with the red dots on their cheeks as well yeah so yeah so it's so if you know what you're looking at it's quite clearly that in that sequence she's actually wearing her wedding dress because to me that wasn't mm. clear um because I think in, in Chinese historical it's they're all in red so that's how we know that they're about to get married okay. um but um yeah so thanks grace for that um but i i thought that was that was really nice uh and there was a little kind of effort to make it a bit more fun with raroon shooting a chicken but it just like it felt flat for me (laughs) oh god so i will say what i was really expecting at the end and i do wish that we had gotten was i thought we were going to have this like time jump and we were going to see delmi give birth to fraternal twins and that this time they would be like happy because they were just going to keep them and love them and like all that like trauma of like you know her generation I don't know why but I thought we were going to get this like nice mirroring scene where that was going to happen but alas we did not and then um yeah the the hill that I will die on is that Hyun needed a B romance and the drama was sadder and lonelier for not giving us that I felt like we could have you know we always over so far there has not been a drama yet even though this one was well paced that still hasn't steered into more political intrigue than it needed to i feel like we could have done away with enough like 15 percent of the intrigue let's say <laughs> and given 15 percent of like a budding b romance to hyun yeah yeah I think the romance reader and the romance lover in me hard agrees on that and I would have loved that mirroring fraternal twin ending that it's such a such a good alternative ending um but I do feel like with Hyun anyway the where the right that where the writer left him sitting alone melancholy on that hill alone staring off in the distance I think that's just where she wanted him to be that's where she wants to leave him like I think that is absolutely the ending she wanted. I mean, for look, him. he got a um, noble. He's going to be a great king. He got a noble. He's going to be a great king. Yeah, wistful. You can't have it all. <laughs> oh, and I think for me, my final thought was just a, a real shout out for the child actress that plays the dual role of Lee Hui and Dalmi as younger children. I think she was mm-hmm. amazing and awesome, okay. uh, and I think she's won awards. And I sent you. There's a small little Twitter video of her doing her acceptance speech where she calls um Park Yun Bin who who plays um uh Lee Hui her uni and then she calls Ruun uh, Samshun which is yes. uncle so I think they're like, all like cracking up uncle, with them. and he's like what do you mean <laughs> and Ruun's like why am I uncle yeah that was really cute that was so cute but yeah she was amazing yeah she was really really good um so yeah I think at the end of the day this is in like probably my top three historical dramas I'd say I've seen today I would put it up there right now well look I guess top three Joseon (laughs) 
because <laughs> Mr. Sunshine's <laughs> my top all favorite. And I guess technically slightly, I mean, would we say Mr. Queen is, jo I mean, it is, I guess, Josen. Ugh, I don't know. It's not, I don't know. I don't know how to, I, what I'm trying to say for a, if we're looking at Josen romance, <laughs> it's in my top three. And like yes. where we're dealing not with, um, you know, colonization and the end of the dynasty, but kind of like mid dynasty. So I would put this, you know, I still think Mr. Queen was maybe more successful to me. Just the modern humor in it was so fun and fresh. Um, and then Moon Lovers, which I don't know, I guess I'm just like, I should just shut up now. Cause that's not really, <laughs> but Moon Lovers, I'm like, never not going to like masochistically love Moon Lovers. And then this one didn't give me those feels either, but I just, like you said, I think it was well-paced. I thought it was smart and I thought it was well-acted. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I think uh, it doesn't really come well with, I think the other historical dramas that I've watched. And after I watched this, I watched The Red Sleeve. And like I said, I'm partway through Moonshine, but I think for the category of yeah historical drama with, with the centers romance that I think this is, this is really spot on. It really, it really kind of nails that, that trope. All right. Well, I've got some homework assignment, which is probably in February to tackle Red Sleeve and we can do another, you know, special historical pod dissecting that because I do know you have a lot to say on that drama. I have, I have big thoughts because it's been so popular. Um, and I went straight from King's Affection to the Red Sleeve partly because of the amount of heat it was generating on social much media. Much more than King's Affection, right? Oh, much, much more, much, much more. But um, as I said, the romance reader in me was very much like the King's Affection, Affection really hit it and the Red Sleeve. I've got thoughts. So I'm, I can't wait for Leah to watch it because I really want to know how, where she lands with this because I think the majority of people that I know that have watched it have loved it. Um, and I'm definitely in the minority in that I didn't. So yeah, I can't wait to hear where you land. Right. Let's see. Well, um, yeah, let's, uh, we'll bring you back another special historical. I'm just so pleased that you're happy to do this because uh, I feel like it just brings so much joy. And I do want to see us getting more historical dramas onto like our episode lists because look, there's a lot of people like us out there who are willing to get in the weeds yeah, with the political intrigue. They don't mind a dowager <laughs> queen or two or three. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm really, like I said, I'm watching Moonshine now as it's dropping. Um, and I was chatting to Megan and basically saying, you know, it's basically her Hyrie playing Dutson, but in Jason era. Yeah, I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> Which in itself is very, enter very entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and and Yu Sung Ho, um, who I know we yeah. all love. Whew. I mean, like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. So, before we go, could you recommend a romance novel that's a historical romance novel for listeners? Uh, yes. So. Um, probably would go back to uh, Elisa Braden, who I mentioned at the start, because like I said, I think she is really underrated. Um, and I would pick uh, her third book from the series, Rescued from Ruin series, uh, which is The Truth About Cads and Dukes. So very briefly, the very plain Jane hero at the beginning of the book dresses as a man to um, go and uh, take part in this kind of uh, burglary 
that goes badly wrong uh, and uh, threatens to ruin her whole family's reputation, so has to be rescued from ruin by uh, a stoic duke um, who, um, yeah, discovers feelings in this a marriage of convenience. Um, so it's totally trope heavy, but done in such a, a great way. You know, plain Jane kind of lands her uh, very eligible duke and makes him feel. It's great. I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And would you like to say goodbye with me? <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kamsamnida. Thank you for listening to Afternoon of Delight. Where can you find us outside the pod? Head on over to afternoonadelight.com. That's A-F-T-E-R-N-O-O-N-A-D-E-L-I-G-H-T dot com. You'll find links to all our social media, our book recs, K-pop and K-skincare recs. And if you want even more Afternoon of Delight, because really who doesn't, you can join our Patreon where you can choose the patron level that's right for you. Join in daily K-drama conversations, listen to bonus podcast episodes just for patrons, and participate in our monthly live K-drama support group via Zoom. We can't wait for you to be a part of the community. Until next time, annyeong!